as we look to the God in prayer. And our Father, what we want to do now is to explore your word together. Yes, there's a remarkable woman here in Esther. But Esther serves a sovereign God. We want to see how this sovereign God's fingerprints are found, not only in this story, but in our story. And just as we link the sequence, the chain of events in this story together, we need to understand the chain of events in our life story and understand how you, you connect this chain together each link. There are no accidents when it comes to friendships, no accidents when it comes to experiences. There's the hirings, there's the dismissals, there's the births, there's the deaths, there's the hellos, there's the goodbyes, there's the ups and there's the downs. But through life's experiences, Father, you connect the dots and make a difference for us through your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. These minutes together again are significant as we explore your word, which is all truth, your truth. So, Father, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, so once again, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I went to my inbox on Wednesday of this week, these words were found at the beginning. My father, Billy Graham, went into the presence of the Lord today. Franklin Graham went on to say, the Bible tells us in Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. And then he adds, many have said that my father's death ends in error. But he would be the first to say that when God's ambassadors die in Christ, the Lord raises up others. As I reflected upon Franklin Graham's words, my, my mind went back to the various Billy Graham crusades that our family has been able to participate in, be part of counselors, overseeing counselors, and other such things. And the various volumes I've read on his life. In his autobiography, Billy Graham recalls in, in particular the pivotal Los Angeles campaign of 1949. He writes, if the amount of advanced press coverage was any indication, the Los Angeles campaign was going to be a failure. Not that the local organizing committee had not tried. They'd employed Lloyd Ducter, public relations director, to drum up interest. But one day, shortly before the meetings opened, he persuaded a handful of reporters to attend the first press conference the first press conference I had ever conducted. The next day, we eagerly scanned the newspapers to see the stories those reporters had written. Nothing. 
As far as the media was concerned, the Los Angeles campaign was going to be a non-event. Wearied, disappointed, and seeming as though we were facing failure, something happens. There's a turn of events. Graham's biographer, William Martin, talks about a middle-of-the-night moment when a well-known radio personality, Stuart Hamblin, shows up at Graham's apartment, inebriated, falling at Billy's legs, begging for help and trying to figure out life and put it back together again. Graham leads Hamblin to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Hamblin, well-known throughout California, tells his good friend John Wayne of the remarkable transformation. Hamblin tells the Duke, quote, It is no secret what God can do, unquote. John Wayne suggests that Hamblin write a song about it, which is sung in churches to this very day. And John Wayne had something to do with that. But then his biographer goes on to say, one evening, a common theme in the study this morning, one evening, quite without warning, a cluster of reporters and photographers met Graham when he arrived at the tent. Puzzled and even somewhat frightened, Billy Graham asked the reporter what was going on. The response was, you have just been kissed by William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was the leading publisher of newspapers throughout the country. He was not known for faith in Jesus Christ, but he was always interested in a story, and for him, Billy Graham was a story. Look here. And the reporter showed Billy Graham a scrap of paper torn from a wire service machine. Here's, here's what happened. The boss said to all of us, quote, unquote, Puff Graham meaning give him national exposure. And the 1949 crusade, which began as the appearance of a failure, was extended on into eight weeks. And from that point on, that crusade is viewed as the turning point, the dramatic entry into not only the national public sphere, but internationally the crusades would go around the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it happened in one night. Puff Graham, he said. What I want to do is to explore with you a nighttime story. There's a chain of events linked to this nighttime story, but God has filled the scriptures with nighttime stories. Like Nicodemus approaching Jesus in the midst of the night. What I want to do is to link some things together with you this morning, the way in which God, your great multitasker, orchestrates life's events, and see what he is doing, past, present, and future, as it revolves around the cross of Jesus Christ. And the first is found in the first three verses of this sixth chapter, and we're going to put it like this. The number one in life's chain of events notice with me that God can orchestrate what we will call number one. The recall, the remembrance of overlooked people 
nor to fulfill his purposes. Now, you pick it up in verse 1. And we're told it's on that night. On that night, the king could not sleep. Now, normally, when you hear people talking about the sovereignty of God, they would quickly inform you, because God is sovereign, you ought to be able to sleep well at night. But if God is sovereign, not only does he give some a good night's rest, God in his sovereignty will disrupt the sleep of others in order to achieve his purposes, you see. Never underestimate what God is doing, even in the disruptions of your normal routine. So ask yourself, if my routine has now been disrupted, what is God doing? What is God saying? Where's all this lead? You see. Furthermore, you'll notice here that the king is not alone. He's got God in there as well. Oh, he doesn't have Haman whispering, here's what you need to do to annihilate the Jews. Nor does he have Esther in there to say, here's what you need to protect the Jews. But what he does have is God in there disrupting his sleep. Why? You'll also notice with me in this story that there is no miraculous involvement in the big picture of things. For example, in the book of Exodus, what you will find is that God parts the waves in order to protect the Jews from the armies of Egypt. There's no parting of the waves here to protect the Jews from the armies of Persia. All we have right now is a disrupted sleep routine. How does God use this? Never underestimate the disruptions of life. And how God is working. On that night, the king could not sleep. He's got insomnia. So what happens? He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And as they're being read before the king, in verse 2, you and I are told, and it was found written how Mordecai, now, that's the queen's cousin who mentored her, discipled her, raised her. Esther was an orphan, you know. This story is a great story about how you raise adopted children. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Five years have gone by since this occurrence, this attempted assassination. Five years. Now what you've got to bear in mind is that Mordecai most likely is the head of security. To be positioned at the king's gate is to be positioned, in other words, in the administrative wing next to the palace. For him to be able to pick up on this conspiracy... He would have had to have some inside information. And the inside information regarding the assassination attempt was probably linked to the time period in which they were in because in 480 B.C., that's when the Persians were defeated by the Greeks in the Bay of Salamis, as we've mentioned. And the treasuries were being depleted by supporting the armies. So a possible coup is on our hands here. The overthrow of the political leader of the, of the land. Now, this king now must have his heart beginning to pound because if he's saying to himself, if Mordecai has not been properly rewarded, what's to say in the next attempted assassination attempt he will once again protect me? Will he have vested interest in protecting me? 
or will he neglect me? And so this story is being read out loud. And what fascinates me at this time is what God might be doing here. The king has so many different options at that time of the night as to how to abide, how to amuse himself, how to use his time. But at this particular point in time, he has simply asked for the records. Is this God's doing? As Shakespeare put it, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And for those of you who play chess, it's tied to the book of Esther. Because the word checkmate comes from the Persian word meaning the king is dead, quote unquote. So now what you're doing is you're examining the chess moves of life. And thus far, the king has been awakened. The king has asked for the records. He could have asked for any number of things, including his favorite DVD. Instead, what he does at this point is that he simply asks for an account of what's been taking place. He hears the fact that Mordecai had been the one to prevent assassination from occurring. And in verse 3, the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Only to hear them say to him, The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing. Nothing has been done for him. Mordecai has been forgotten. Or has he? Melissa Falk, who ministers to gangs in New York City, talks about her experience with a particular gang culture and one individual. Quote, A young man who had been involved in a gang came to Christ, but his ties with his gang... The ghost shadows remained intact. He came into my office one day with a stack of what he called, quote, hell money, unquote. He told me that hell money, which looks like Monopoly dollars, was burned at the grave of another gang member who had died while helping you. As the money turns to ash, they believe it is supernaturally deposited into their friend's possession in hell. The deceased, he informed me, the deceased had saved his life by maneuvering him out of a gang fight. Melissa, he said, you always got to remember the one who saves you. You can't forget the one who brought you out. Has Mordecai been forgotten? Maybe by the king, but not by the king of kings and lord of lords. And maybe you've given so much of your life and your heart and all your energies to something and you've been overlooked. Maybe it's at the workplace. Maybe it's in family. Maybe it's in friendships. Maybe it's in church. And your output has so exceeded your input that you feel depleted. And you can relate to Mordecai at this point. There's the sense of being overlooked. And there's the sense of being undervalued. But God is there in that bedroom. In life's chain of events, God can orchestrate the recall of overlooked people 
fulfill his purpose. You see it in verses 1, 2, down through 3. But now what we find here is there is a second orchestration occurring. God is a multitasker, so he can do more than one simultaneously. In 4 through 11, we're going to put it like this, number 2, that in life's chain of events, God can furthermore orchestrate the timing of unlikely encounters to fulfill his purposes. And now you're up to verse 4. And the king now said, who is in the court? Notice the timing here. This book is a book about timing. We've seen that in the key verse of this entire, of this entire written account. Where Mordecai had said to Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Time and timing. You wrestle with those things, don't you? But now, in verse 4, the king said, who is in the court? Now, the king can't sleep, but evidently someone else can't sleep either. Who is it? Haman. And the king said, who is in the court? And now you and I are introduced to a parenthesis at this point. Now, Haman, who had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. This week is Purim. It's one of the favorite holidays among the Jews globally. Sometime this week, go on the internet and click on this, get into a synagogue and see how they celebrate it. Fascinating. Incredibly fascinating. It's been secularized to a large extent where it's, it's a major holiday, but not necessarily a remembrance of the one who protected them at this particular hour in order to bring Messiah into this world. Messianic Jews, though, recognize it. Herman Wolk, in one of his volumes, writes, The day before Purim is the Feast of Esther, a sunrise to sundown abstention. At sundown, the synagogues fill up. The marked difference between this and all other occasions in the Jewish year is the number of children on hand. For you see, Purim is children's night in the synagogue. It always has been. And boy, the children sense their rights and they exercise them. Because they carry flags and noisemakers. The traditional whirling rattle is called groggers, which can make a staggering racket. And after the evening prayers, the reading of the book of Esther begins. And when you get to this point where the name Haman is mentioned, it triggers off stamping, pounding, and a hurricane of groggers. The reader waits patiently. The din dies. He continues reading. And as soon as he gets to another mention of the name Haman, Bedlam breaks loose again. You can imagine what's going to happen now Wednesday night of this week when they get to chapter 6 and they see what's occurring here with regard to Haman. He's now in the court. He's trying to execute his strategy to execute the Jews. And he'll start with Mordecai. 
Uh, but God's got other plans, doesn't he? And we quickly learn in life that our plans are not necessarily God's plans, and God's plans are not our plans, and God's sovereign, and we're not. Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for them. And the king's young men told him, Haman's there standing in the court. Now you're asking, and now why is not only the king awake, but why is Haman awake, and why has this taken place? Is this an accident in time, or is this an appointment in time? You ever wrestle with those things? Is this coincidence or not? These are not accidents in time. These are, these are appointments in time. I mean, well, there's Billy Graham, and he's got this man who's gripping his knees in the heart of the night. And this man then tells John Wayne about an idea, and John Wayne says, you need to create a song out of that. Next thing you know, it's being sung through the decades to come. Accident? Or appointment? Have you ever pondered those random conversations and those random encounters and wondered, what are you doing, God? Why is that, God? Where does this go, God? So in verse 6, Haman came in. Oh, he can't wait. He thinks now he gets to be able to fulfill his agenda. Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And you've got to figure, Haman thinks, this is my moment to shine. My moment for glory. I'm in the king's court, you see. C.S. Lewis writes about such people. They're looking for significance. But there's danger of seeking significance outside of salvation. In his essay, The Inner Ring, Lewis writes, I believe that in all of people's lives at certain periods, and in many lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age. One of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. Pause. Now at this moment, it looks like Haman's on the inside and Mordecai's on the outside. Lewis goes on to write, your genuine inner ring exists for exclusion. There would be no fun if there were no outsiders. The invisible line would have no meaning unless most people were on the wrong side of it. Exclusion is no accident. It's the essence. Now, as you ponder the significance of what C.S. Lewis penned, think about at this moment what Mordecai must be feeling. I'm an outsider and Haman's an insider. I don't have influence. And furthermore, he would know the promise delivered to the Jews. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. But God, it seems as though the one who curses me is being blessed by you. But watch out the, it seems that, or it appears that in life. Because the appearances are not necessarily the realities. 
And in God's big scheme of things, the outsider might be the insider, and the insider might be the outsider. Think Judas. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor is the question. Hmm. What prompted the king to even ask that? Haman said to himself, whom would love, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? He finds significance in status rather than salvation. Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. Now thus far the king has not even mentioned Mordecai's name. Why not? Has God sovereignly kept the king from mentioning Mordecai's name? He could have easily asked Haman, how should we honor Mordecai? No. Instead, he asks, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Is what Haman's reflecting upon to the question, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He thinks it's all about himself, you see. Danger of this world today. So Haman brings it on in verse 8. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, the horse that the king's ridden, and on whose head a royal crown set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. He's not going to end there. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights honor. What a setup. So the insider looks like the outsider, and the outsider looks like the insider, and then there's this whole matter of what John Yates writes about. The only survivor of a shipwreck washed up on a small uninhabited island. He cried out to God to save him, and every day he scanned the horizon for help, but none seemed forthcoming. Exhausted, he even eventually managed to build a rough hut, put his few possessions in it. But then one day after hunting for food, he arrived home to find his little hut in flames, smoke rolling up to the sky. The worst had happened, he was stung with grief. Early the next day, though, a ship drew near the island and rescued him. How did you know I was here, he asked the crew. We saw your smoke signal, they replied. There have a sense where your dreams and your hopes went up in smoke. Could it very well be that that's the smoke signal that God is using to achieve his purposes for his glory and not ours? Jesus' accusers thought they had the upper hand, that they were on the inside, and Jesus was on the outside. When he, they had him nailed to the cross. But three days later, we find out that Jesus is on the inside, and they were on the outside when God the Father raises Jesus from the dead. There is a word for this in theology as well as in literature. It's called peripety. 
A peripety is a sudden turn of events. God sovereignly has kept the king from mentioning Mordecai's name thus far, allowing Haman to be drawn out regarding his intent, his desires for himself. It's gone on record. King accepts the recommendation. But now out of the recommendation comes the humiliation. Look at verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hey, take the robes and the horse as you have said. Mark what comes next. And do so to Mordecai the Jew. He doesn't say, and do so to Mordecai. He says, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Now, you're on top of it. And you're already drawing a line back to the frustration and the, and the tension in the soul of, of Haman in the previous chapter, where he vents in his own house with his friends and family. We're in chapter 5, verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Do you remember the council? His wife Zerosh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. It's about 75 feet. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. So he is such, so fixated upon not merely the name Mordecai, but the whole matter of being Mordecai the Jew, that God sovereignly supervises the wording coming from the king's lips. Hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. You're up to verse 11. So Haman took the robes of the horse and he dressed Mordecai. Do you see the peripety here? You see the sudden reversal here? The insiders become the outsider. The outsiders become the insider. You see sovereign workings of God, the fingerprints of the divine. Haman's got to touch Mordecai. He's robing him. He is giving him the status that he himself desired. And Mordecai wasn't even seeking it. Haman was. If that's not enough, he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, that very same place where Mordecai had mourned and grieved over the edict issued by whom Haman for the annihilation of the Jews. Now here is Haman guiding Mordecai through that very same setting, celebrating Mordecai. Proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And what God does at strategic times is that he takes a William Randolph Hearst, most likely an unbeliever, and tells the reporters, quote-unquote, Puff Graham, 
And what seemed like a non-event all of a sudden became a worldwide ministry that would last for decade upon decade upon decade. In life's chain of events, God can orchestrate the recall of overlooked people to fulfill his purpose, the timing of unlikely encounters to fulfill his purpose. And you can imagine now how Mordecai felt as he saw Haman coming his way, and Mordecai must have been wondering, is this my moment? The gallows have been constructed. What's Haman's intent? The bigger question is, what is God's intent? We tie it together now. Because verses 12 through 14 is your third orchestration. That thirdly, in life's chain of events, God can orchestrate what I'll call the reversal of human destinies to fulfill his purposes. You think you're going in one direction and God sends you in the opposite direction. You pursue that degree and God sends you for that occupation. You pursue that relationship and you wind up in this relationship. You pursue that job, you end up in this job. You pursue that setting of the United States, you end up in this setting of the United States or wherever. And so now the great reversal occurs here. The ultimate peripety is unfolding. And Mordecai, what's he up to? Is he going to use this to his advantage now and go and position himself next to the king? Now, this is, a, this is a man who rolls up his sleeves and goes back to work. I love the humility, don't you? And Mordecai returned to the king's gate. There is so much stated in so little there. But now notice Haman. He's in the same sentence, same verse. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. Yet if you look at chapter 4, when Haman had issued the edict for the annihilation of the Jews, it was Mordecai who was mourning with all the Jewish population. This is called the peripety, the reversal due to God's sovereignty. Where the insider becomes the outsider, the outsider becomes the insider. Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered, Haman told his wife Zerosh and all his friends everything that had happened. Now, you remember their counsel to him in chapter 5, verse 14, while building the gallows? Have Mordecai hanged on it? And then go joyfully to the king and feast? Well, connect what was found in chapter 5, verse 14, with what you're reading in terms of this counsel in chapter 6, verse 13. Haman told his wife Zerosh and all his friends everything that had happened. And then his wise men and his wife Zerosh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. They don't know Genesis 12, do they? They don't know the promise made, do they? I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. But what captures my attention, they did capture something here, because in the Hebrew, and I was so taken aback by this as I was reading, where it reads, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people... The phrase of the Jewish people in the Hebrew means of the seed. The very same Hebrew word of Genesis 3.15. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. God preserves his seed, leading to the ultimate offspring, the ultimate Jew, Jesus Christ. There will be a Christmas. There will be a Good Friday. There will be an Easter because there is preservation of the seed through the generations. Before Haman can even catch his breath in 14, while they were yet talking with him, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. And believe me, Esther's Esther's got more than a feast prepared. Meanwhile, Billy Graham called Armin Geschwein in Chicago to say in the midst of the 1949 crusade, where all of a sudden this incredible reversal is occurring, you better get back out here real fast because something has broken out and it's way beyond me. And in the months that followed, Graham had little time to reflect on just what it was that had happened or his capacity to handle it. The words Puff Graham were still unknown. But on the train back to Minneapolis, conductors and passengers treated him like a hero. Reporters crowded on board to press their inquiries. And a band of Northwestern colleagues welcomed him home in the middle of the night. And I've underlined, in the middle of the night. Meanwhile, the next day, while reporting on the campaign to the college campus, Northwestern in Minneapolis, Graham faltered, then sat down without finishing simply overcome by the magnitude of, quote, the turn his life had taken. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, understand the great peripety, the incredible turn your life has taken. So there in my inbox on Wednesday, along with countless people around the world, were these words. My father, Billy Graham, went into the presence of the Lord. The Bible tells us in Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, that they may rest from their labors, and their works will follow them. Many have said that his death ends in error, but he would be the first to say that when God's ambassadors die in Christ, the Lord raises up others. And that, that's your sovereign God. Let's stand together. Somebody this morning, Father, must be looking at life right now and it looks incredibly chaotic, incredibly confusing. A lot of dots and no connections. 
Can't see the picture. But the sovereign artist of above designs life globally, nationally, personally, simultaneously. All seemed lost for Mordecai. In the eyes of the disciples, all seemed lost regarding Christ. But then the peripety occurs. The insider becomes the outsider. The outsider becomes the insider. And when the peripety occurs, three days later, Jesus is raised from the dead. If anyone comes here, Father, not knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior, create now the great reversal in their lives. May they put faith and trust in him and him alone. And for this, we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.